1: What's good, everybody? It is our favorite time of the year here at the Black Effect. We're heading down to Atlanta for the 2024 Black Effect Podcast Festival. And we're not going alone. Nissan is back as our partner. And they're continuing their Pitch Your Podcast Lounge at the festival, where you'll have the opportunity to pitch your podcast idea live and share it with the Black Effect team. So get those podcast ideas ready. And remember, you can count on Nissan to dial up the thrill in your adventures, no matter where life takes you. Visit blackeffect.com slash podcast Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. That's
2: how we own it!
3: What's good, family? I'm your girl, Tamika D. Mallory. it's
4: your boy, my son, the
3: general. And we are your hosts of Street Politicians, the the place where the streets streets and politics
4: politics meet. meet.
3: We are in person today. You know what I'm saying? Who We're back year? in office. Back year. Yeah.
4: 2022. We back in style. <laughs> back in style and inside. We back in style and inside. We doing what we do. Yeah, actually you. put.
3: Pants on now, yeah, like man, I can't me, I gotta put my, my couch, pants right in my boxes.
4: <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Can't do I put
3: that. my my shirt over my nightgown sometimes, and I go to work, and, that, <laughs> to and work. that's that. But nah, now it's it's good to be in studio too, and to see the entire Street Politicians team, folks that have been working to yeah. make this show the greatest, and it's it's a good feeling to be at work. Our panel today is probably gonna be a deep, long discussion. Um, I'm excited about it. I want to see what you did. You know, what you, yeah, you put this, this together is, this all by your lonesome, all by myself. Um, and I want to. I'm, I'm excited to get to that. So I don't want us to sit and be labored. There's so much happening so much. in this country. So much happening. There is the debate that's happening over the filibuster being changed so that they could get voting rights passed in Washington. That's actually just started yesterday. There's developments there. Um, there's things happening with uh, COVID 19 and, and the vaccinations. Looks like Nike. Um, has laid off or fired several of their employees who were not vaccinated. So over this past weekend, uh, several people who were not vaccinated have been terminated because the policy went into effect in October that they would have to be vaccinated. And the deadline was January 15th. So you have that happening. You've got kids walking out of schools because they feel unsafe. You've got mayors like our mayor in New York, um, uh, Eric Adams, saying that the city, the world has to open up. And I actually agree, um, You know, and work. I don't agree with Eric on all the things, but I do agree with him that the, the city has to open, the country has to open, too many people don't have jobs. And by the way, the federal government is not sending all of this money for that, it was sending in the past. So we yeah, got to get people back to work. Yeah, exactly. people got to get back to work. Somehow we're not getting rid of COVID. The CDC and happened. others within the federal system, whatever health experts say, we've got to live with COVID the same way we do the flu, the same way we do all these other things that we deal with, and we got to. It we have to figure out how to work it out. That doesn't mean that I don't understand students who in their schools... Aren't getting the proper testing equipment, the proper masks, the proper sanitizing, you know, things that they need and support so that they can be well. And they're saying, hell no, because when you say it, the city has to open up, there's, there also should be mechanisms for dealing with people who have health concerns and challenges. So there's a lot of stuff going on even with that. I mean, there's, there's shootings happening still. I think I saw some, which I don't watch. I don't even your page. I can't. It's too it's traumatic. Um, sometimes you have funny stuff on there. Well, you had something on there that I appreciated the other day, which I'll go to that next. But um, but you had something on there about a woman being stabbed? or
4: Yeah, in the Bronx the other day. Um, five in the morning, two men beat and stabbed a woman. Just Did they know up. her? It didn't seem like they asked her some questions and just started stabbing her in the back and her torso and beating her and kicking her. It was just... I just don't, like I said, coward culture is at an all-time high, and um, it seems, I don't know what it is, I've been seeing a lot of this in the Bronx, where um, men are just really assaulting, stabbing, cutting, beating, trying to rob women, and I think, you know, as men, we have to do a lot. We have to do a lot of work to to take back our communities, man. People can't feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. Like, we have to make those type of people feel like, yo, we can't even be, scene out here you know we have we got to protect our communities man i think it's time that we definitely got to step up and um just be those stalwarts in our community that protect our women and children
3: but it's not just um in the bronx although the bronx has really been wilding like Mm -hmm. and and it's crazy because i tell people i live in the bronx and they look at me like oh you know and i mean around the world because poverty
4: too you know poverty well we have the highest poverty rate.
3: Right, and in this in the, in, the, in the state of New York. Well, know, I don't know because upstate is pretty bad. I'm
4: just saying what they—that's what they said. I just read where they said that it's the poorest borough.
3: Well, yeah, I mean maybe, but I'm just saying maybe they're talking about in the city. Yeah, because like in, said, the in the state of New York, upstate, there's some places that are—it's really. I would have to really, look into that, but I really know really bad. So I guess maybe in the city, but nonetheless. It's not just there because we just went to a vigil last week for a young girl who was working at Burger King and the man went in there and asked her to give the money. She gave everything that was in the register and he still shot her to death. So it's like it just it never it's never ending. It's all across not just the city. It's all across the nation. We have to travel this weekend to Las Vegas where there's violence happening. We're hearing that. I was I was saying, well, you know, the, the organizers we're working with, I said, well, can we, um, you know, go to the hood and have our event there? You know, and I was trying to work it up, And she was like, oh, no, the shootings are not just happening in the hood. It's on the strip. It's in just the regular mall, anywhere. It's anywhere and it doesn't make sense. It's not all gang related. It's just violence. It's just it's breaking out everywhere. And so, you know, um it, it's a lot happening. And I think, you know, and we spend a lot of time focused on Soldier Boys. Pictures were released, and you know, we won't talk about that on this show, but whoof, honey. But anyway. That happens, and then Kodak Black gets a lap dance or whatever a twerk dance, and the thing, and this happened to happen, and we're really focused on that. You see the comment section light up, and I don't. I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm saying there still needs to be joy there still needs to be things to take your mind off the trauma but when somebody's talking about voting rights or talking about other things that matter there are less people engaged i'm again not trying to take away folks ability to enjoy and to and to take their mind off all these other crises but we have to be equally engaged because guess what our opponents the people who work against us they are they are uh, methodical strategic they are relentless they are patient they spend their money together I mean these folks are very very much so invested in their lives their world and the world that they want to see they are building it they're building it they're fighting for it now and then that brings me to the money conversation and what was on your page that I did appreciate this Kyrie Irving piece now all of a sudden. Well, maybe he can play in New York if we are willing to pay a fine. But that's
4: always the thing about it is that that's always been. It's always been the, the mandates were about fines because if you didn't, if you didn't um,
3: follow follow right. the
4: mandate, then there was a fine. You had to pay a thousand dollars, then another thousand, then two thousand, then ultimately it was five hundred, five thousand dollars every time. So like and they got the money. For me it's like why wouldn't he just why wouldn't they let him do that anyway? Because if, if if he's testing and he doesn't have COVID and he's he's playing their games anyway, there are different teams that every and it's not the mandate of the NBA anyway. You know, the whole NBA doesn't have a mandate Right. It's just certain states. Right. right, which would make states, a difference. Exactly. Certain states have mandates. So there are NBA players who are just not vaccinated anyway, and they all have to go through the same protocol anyway. Whether you vaccinated or not, you still have to take the test. You still have to clear. If you if you catch COVID, you go on the COVID protocol. So if if he's still doing that and he's willing to play the fines and he's not coming to the game of COVID, like I don't understand the whole big thing but about they, it. But, but for
3: me – It's like it goes along with everything else in a capitalist society that we will sit and say this is being forced on some folks. But these people, long as they got the money, they can pay their way out of whatever is being forced on the rest of society. I was watching, um, you know, I watched uh, several shows, Uh, Sanford and Sons, one of my big shows. I watch it all the time. Love it. Um, I also watch um, the Golden Girls, um, and I watched the Andy Griffith Show, and a few a few others. Um, Good Times, and the Jeff, and uh, was is it was it the Jeffersons? Because mm-hmm. it was the Jeffersons cartoon, and then the Jeffersons the show, right?
4: Yeah, I don't know about Jeffersons cartoon. I'm
3: talking about on man, we're moving on up. That's the okay, show. the Jeff, but there was the Jefferson. No, it was the Jetsons. The Jetsons. Okay, so the Jeffersons. Lord, show. I was confused. So I know I wa- the Jeffersons had a cartoon. No, no. So I watched. I watched those shows. But I, oh, I watched the Andy Griffith show. It's, it's one of my favorites. And in the show, Barney gave, um, uh, uh, not Opie, it's, it's one of the guys, I can't remember his name, but he works in the car, he's, he fixes the cars. Anyway, gave him a ticket for um, making a U-turn in an illegal U-turn. So he gave him a ticket, mm-hmm. and it was a whole thing. And Barney said, I'll give it to my child, I'll give it to my mother. You know, Barney, he's like, anybody could get it. So they say, okay. Then he Barney goes on about his business. So one day Barney's pulling out of the station, and he makes an illegal U turn, and the whole town runs up to, to Barney, led by this guy saying, "Citizens arrest! Citizens arrest! Citizens arrest! You got to write yourself a ticket. You gotta you gotta pay because you were not going to an emergency, and you made an illegal um turn, and you it, the rules don't change for you." So while these shows were funny, but it does represent a particular That's point, because of yeah. course Barney quit his job. He sat in the cell, locked himself in the jail. You know, he mm-hmm. was super, super dramatic, right? And but it did make the point. And Andy told him, "You told folks that this was the rule. So how do the rules all of a sudden change when it comes to you?" Of course, it changes because Kyrie is helping them win games. Mm-hmm. So now all of a sudden, this the mandate we can shift. But I
4: think, I think, I think it's, it's a, a plethora of things, right? It's is Kyrie is helping to win games as we move along in our knowledge of what COVID is and the possibility of eliminating it, how it spreads, right. people who actually still have the vaccine getting it or and, and, and realizing that it's still the same protocol. So when you start realizing – and that's why Kyrie came back because now if you look in the NBA – you have a bunch of people who have 10-day contracts because everybody's on the COVID protocol. Right. This person got COVID, so he got to sit out. So now they don't even have players. So everybody's still dealing with the same thing. It's not like you eliminated anything. So when they what they realize is, well, whether you vaccinated or not, if you don't have COVID and you test it, you know what what is gonna be the difference between the people who do have who do have a vaccine or not, because they're still coming up with the, the, you know, with COVID and they still got to go through the same protocol. So when you really think about it, does it really make sense that you stop him from playing, especially if he's still going through the same protocol, he's still taking the test. He's going through all the things. If he doesn't have it, he's already had it. He went through the COVID protocol, came back.
3: I think the biggest point that you made, um, on this is that the NBA does not have an, an official vaccination policy. So so regardless of whether you agree or not, because you're gonna have some people say, well, unvaccinated people create mutations, this and that. You're gonna have all of these different discussions and arguments. But the bottom line is there is no official mandate that the NBA has a, a, a lot of it has to do with the fact that you have states with governors and probably owners who are not vaccinated themselves and and even if they are they don't believe in it they are blocking vaccinations or whatever so it's very political and at the end of the day the nba wants to make money and they want to win people want to win games that's so that's it line. that's what it comes down to and you know so just like barney the rules got to be the rules right so but the thing is it was never a rule but that's what i'm saying okay the rules have to be the rules if there is no vaccination policy then you can't go say this one man has to be forced to do it and if he doesn't and if you do force him to do it he has the right to say i'm walking away right mm-hmm. so there's that so look i'm just going to go real quick through this particular point because i know what we're talking about and we've been preparing all weekend um you know for this discussion uh today with these great these incredible incredible men leaders Um, and just, you know, thought leaders and everything, just incredible men. And so, you know, as we're preparing and thinking through what we would talk about, I happen to be in a conversation, you know, Sundays is dinner at my mom and dad's house. My family members, a few of them come, uncle, aunt, my brother, um, every Sunday. And so we're sitting just talking and, and talking about life and, you know, different things. And casually, my brother says, yeah, I did um, five years, 60 months, he says, in solitary confinement. And I'm like, what? Like, first of all, I did my brother's bid. He'll tell you. I did all his bids since, I think you know, I, I, I don't remember when it first started. But even at five and six years old, I knew he was going to call on the phone. So I was, because, you know, the phone was busy. There was no call waiting, right? So I was the one like, hey, Get 6 o'clock, phone. 6 o'clock. You know, Derek. So that's doing a bid with somebody. When you concerned about when they call. I was concerned about his box being by The time I got to 10 and 12, I was going in the grocery store with my parents. Like, he needs these little shrimps. He needs this can of this and the tuna and whatever. The Whatever it was, sure. I have been involved in every part. But then I became a teenager and I started hanging in the street. So I must have missed five years. Of when he was in solitary confinement on, I can't believe that happened to him And my thought of the day today Cause there I see things about my brother While he's wonderful He's calmed down He's a, he, he getting to be an old man now But I see things about him That And, not, and I don't mean in the You know cause he's younger than some of these young cats Physically and all of that but he's getting to be an old man now, which is a is a good thing, right? I wonder what kind of world we would be in if there was mental health support, like mandatory therapy. For people who are coming out of prison, especially if they were in solitary confinement, just the same way that it should be for our veterans and others who have gone through traumatic experiences. If we want to live in a world where people um, do where the recidivism rate is reduced. Right. What if everybody had to go to to get mental health support? What if we lived like if America was that? How much better would our world be?
4: It would be way better. man. A lot of us are dealing with, especially coming from prison, when you talk about that, being incarcerated and being in solitary confinement is one of the worst. It's, it's complete detachment, right? Right. It, 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 it desensitizes you to so many things. It makes you crave seclusion. It makes you not want to, you know, have um, trust issues. It makes you have interaction issues. It makes you calculate. It makes you really sit and think about things and calculate them in a manner that the average person don't. So, when I sit here and think about what you're saying about... Because you Derek don't share... Dance. Derek yeah. being in... And I can look at Derek and, and I could tell that. Right. Because, understand, he's a good dude, you know, and he's vibrant and all these things, but you can see how it had affected him. Mm-hmm. You know, you can really see how it affected him. And I tell people all the time, you've done more than 60 days in solitary right. confinement. There is a level... Of trauma and mental health that you're dealing with that you don't even realize mm. because you start to normalize things that are not even normal anymore. Yeah, you know. So we definitely need mental health. I think that should be a requirement. It I should. Think, be. I think because we we don't even like I find myself talking to certain people and it, it becomes therapeutic. It's only two or three people that I could talk to that I I feel identify what it is that I've been through, I've been through similar things, and I, I call these two or three people, and and, I, and every time we talk, I find out something more about myself. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Just listening to them, and them giving me their perspective, even if we don't agree, and we, we debating back and forth, but it's always therapeutic for me. It's mm. always like, wow. And I find therapeutic just my own solitude. Mm. And I, think, I don't know if that's normal, right? I'm most mm. creative when I'm by myself, I'm most creative when I'm just walking alone. I find myself in a different space. I like I crave that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't and, and sometimes I don't know if it's good or bad, you know, but It's I challenging
3: know. when you have a family and 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 everybody wants engagement or you're a part of a project and people want you to be engaged. But I even I have to get by myself in order to hear and to and to be in tune with my leadership Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, to read and, and stay focused. And so I don't know if it's a bad thing, but I do know that there's some just some some fundamental issues about this country that really need to be shifted in order for us to be a healthy society
0: Connecting changes everything. AT&T.
2: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined.
5: at purdueglobal.edu. That's how
3: we own it! Oh year we are really working to bring in more black male owned businesses we need to hear from black men who have products services and um you know particularly um black men but everybody anybody but we're looking specifically for black men and so if you have a business a real business we tell you all the time it's got to have like a tax id a bank account real business please hit us up in the dms at street politicians pod at street politicians pod and our team They're in there. They're looking for the dopest businesses out there. And we want to be able to elevate your platform and to to really bring some awareness to your products and services.
4: So as usual, you know, on Street Politician, we have a lot of friends. We usually bring our friends friends to the table. um, (laughs) These three brothers are brothers that I I consider friends who are very um, inspirational, Mm -hmm. motivational, from different walks of life and um, they've inspired me in different ways. Um, first, I would like to introduce my brother Shaka Senghor, a writer, entrepreneur, speaker, inspiring speaker, leading voice in criminal justice reform, and president of Shaka Senghor Incorporated. Shaka um, was locked up for a homicide, ended up doing 19 years in prison. He was released in 2010 after spending seven years of his prison sentence inside of solitary confinement. Wow. He wrote a memoir which is a dope memoir. He's recipient of numerous awards. I can't even name right, all the awards right. he got. We'll be sitting here doing a whole episode <laughs> on that. But um welcome Shaka Sigore to the to the panel today. What's going on, Shaka?
6: Um blessed man. Thank you all so much for having me. It's good to see all our faces. I know it's been a while since we all been in person and uh just inspired to be here and honored to be here. So thank you all for having
4: me. Definitely man. Thanks for being here. Um next we have another one a brother that I respect, you know. He's a different he took a different route. He grew up where I'm from, my hometown, the Bronx. He's attorney Royce Russell. Um, he went to Hofstra University where he got his law degree, became a criminal defense and civil rights lawyer in New York City. He's my lawyer. My lawyer, You know too. what I'm saying? He calls, he does. He's got us out of a lot of stuff and got us into some more stuff. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He specializes in criminal defense, false arrests, police brutality, civil rights violations, immigration, contract employment, all types of things. He's, he's one of the dopest lawyers that I know. He also now has a book called um cardiac book is called cardiac arrest mm-hmm. It's a tactical guide on how to handle unlawful police stops so welcome my brother and friend royce russell to the table attorney royce russell how you doing king
7: all right all right as shaka said is i'm always i'm very happy to see a face with the voice you know i always hear the voice because we're communicating all the time but it's nice to see the face and you know i just try to do the right thing by right people when you're out here in the streets so mm-hmm. thank you well I appreciate that man. I don't Listen.
3: think you said um, Shaka's book What you said he has a memoir but it's actually called Writing My Wrongs
4: Writing My Wrongs Life, Death, and Redemption in an American Prison mm. it was released in 2016 mm. and it was a New York Times bestseller mmm I mean, I told you we'll be sitting here talking about all the sure, stuff that yeah. Shaka got forever. forever. Yeah, you know so Shaka's the Shaka do a lot of man. stuff, man. Like listen, <laughs> Shaka always calls me with a new idea. Got movies, plays. Like Shaka's, he's definitely he's a renaissance man. He's what he's what you should think about when you when you talk about. You know, rehabilitation and redemption and coming home from prison. He's a motto yeah. for what it should look like, you know, when you come home and you evolve to the next level. Yeah. And this brother is also one of those brothers. This is Mr. Kevin Chows, CEO, co-founder of Don Diva Magazine. Kevin Chows is a previous street pharmacist. A street pharmacist. Turned business person and creator. He is most popular for running a medication racket in the roads of Harlem during 1980s. He was charged with tax evasion, opioids trafficking, racketeering, racketeering. Following a supplication bargain, he also served ten years in government prison. Mm. He opened apparel and boutiques using proceeds from the narcotic transactions. Mm. Boss Sneakers and Boss Emporium were two of his investments in the 1980s. Chad. He's also founded Big Big Boss Records, his own record label. Mm-hmm. Um, he he's done so much and now he is the writer of a book called The Crack Era, The Rise, Fall and the Redemption of Kevin Childs. Welcome Kevin Childs to the show today.
3: Yeah. Thank What's you. What's going, brother. Kev? Hey
8: man. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just honored to be a part of the panel. I appreciate the invite. Yes, so sir. black
3: men do write books.
4: Yes, man. Right, black men write books. So, you know, when we thought about this show, we I was just thinking about you know, how different ways that we've evolved, you know, being formally incarcerated after spending seven years in prison, you know, we get such a bad rap, you know, about coming home and, or being in prison. People don't believe that you can evolve from that. They have this stigma that you're a criminal and it's just crime, you know? And what I realized, like I told people all the time, when you're a drug dealer, you just sell drugs. When you're a hustler, you can sell anything, you know? And a lot of us, were but naturally hustlers when we went to jail. We just had the wrong product that we were selling. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I when I see brothers like Kevin Childs and I see brothers like Shaka and Gore and just the brilliant minds that they are. Like when you sit and talk to these brothers, they're brilliant, literally brilliant. You know, and they don't and a lot of people don't understand the level of brilliance that they've had and just seeing the evolution. So I wanted to utilize my platform to be able to elevate these brothers and then yeah. also bring someone like Royce Russell, in the conversation, who came from the same beginnings that we come from, the same areas, but he utilized his mentality to do a different he took a different route mm-hmm. you know but it's, when you I'm telling you these brothers are all similar I mm-hmm. speak to them and have conversations and they all have the similar mind frame and they're all about the same thing so I just wanted to talk about mm-hmm. their books talk about their evolution talk about their processes you know and just give them some praise man and mm-hmm. utilize our platform to and highlight you know, I'm them
3: I'm all about the praise for black men so let's jump right into it so why don't we talk about the books um, you know what, what encouraged you Shaka and Kevin um, and Royce to write your books. Um, you know the the first of all, the titles of each book are is very powerful. Um, and so maybe we should start there you know what encouraged you to to um, to to write a book and then title it what you did. So let's start with Shaka.
6: Uh, thank you so much. It's so good to see you Tamika. Uh So the, my first book, which is my first mainstream re- release, not the first book that I wrote Um, writing my wrongs was inspired by a couple of things. One, I was really fortunate when I was in prison to have incredible mentors who guided me to books. And I used to tell this story that the most important book I read was Malcolm X's autobiography. Mm. And I realized that wasn't true. The most important book I read was Donald Gorn's Dope Fiend, Mm. because he was writing about the inner city and writing about the reality that I had actually came from. And that book led me to read Malcolm X's autobiography. So I have a, a a deep, passionate love for writers in general, you know, the, the legacy of brilliant writers, the James Baldwin's and Alex Haley's of the world and Maya Angelou, who, you know, is, is the queen, you know, to me when it comes to a personal narrative. Mm-hmm. So that energy of writing as a way of healing was something that was deeply embedded. And then there was a, a Kanye song I was listening to this verse, when he was like, "It's funny how these songs help me right my wrongs," and uh, some iteration of that, and I was like, "Man, it's a brilliant title for a book because I started off journaling mm-hmm. first before I even wrote a book because I had to heal from the traumatic experience of being incarcerated at a young age. You know, the traumatic experience of actually taking someone's life—something that we don't talk about. You know, we t- often talk about the trauma of being, you know, the victim of gun violence." But we don't talk about the long-enduring trauma when you take somebody's life and how that continues to stay and endure no matter what. You know, if I robbed somebody, I could get them back what I took, but you can never, you know, uh, restore a life in that way. And so, you know, I thought it was really important to share that. And, you know, as you may know, I have a new book coming out, Letters to the Sons of Society. Mm-hmm. Um, and that title came from being inspired by the letters my dad wrote me while I was in prison. Um, we wrote, to, you know, for 19 years, we often don't hear the story of black fathers or fathers in general who stand by their children's side through adversity. And my dad, you know, wrote me for 19 years. We exchanged letters. We argued. We debated. We joked. Um And I wanted to, you know, really memorialize the world that we live in for my two sons, one who's 30 years old and one who's 10 years old.
4: Mm. So what was... So I know you have a new book that you are releasing.
3: Yeah, you said, yeah. You yeah. just said it's a new book. What what is it called again?
6: Called "Letters to the Sons of Society: of right. to Honesty, Freedom, and Love."
3: Wow. Okay. wow, wow, wow. So are you? So you're in the writing process now, or are you finished?
6: No, it's done. It actually comes out uh, Tuesday.
3: Oh, okay. That's <laughs> what's up? How many? How many yeah, books right.
4: you, would you say that you've written that you haven't released?
6: So originally I started off self-publishing. I self-published for, then went to mainstream publishing, but I got a total of about eight catalogs. My goal is to hit 10, mm. um, and I'll be re-releasing some of my earlier work uh, at a future date. Wow,
4: wow. that's amazing, awesome. Awesome. that's dope. Great. So Great. so Kev, Kev what, what was your inspiration behind your book, the title, you know, just give us a little peep into your brain about what you was thinking about.
8: Um. Well, let me back up a little bit. You know, uh, Don Diva, I created when I was incarcerated. And the reason for me doing that was that uh, I I realized how our communities weren't aware of certain information that, you know, that caused me to make some bad decisions in my life. So the creation of that started while I was incarcerated. So for almost 20 years now, we've been publishing Don Diva. And our motto is like, you know, we uh, educate and entertain, you know, and it encompasses uh, a way creatively that we, provide information that wouldn't ordinarily be read readily available, you know, uh, some of the pitfalls that happen in our communities from everything from uh, repairing your credit to some of the laws that we often find about, we find out about after we're incarcerated. You know, having said that, fast forward, uh, to be quite honest with you, you had a lot to do with me writing this book, to be honest with you. Um, that's a situation that you quite aware of when you went up to high in 97, which caused me to have to go up there to, to, to expound on. What you, what you have been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized after that interview that it seemed like people was interested in, in, in what I had to say and me more personally. So I think probably days after that, I was encouraged to start writing. So from the time that I was up there, which was like in 2016, I think maybe the next two years, <clears throat> I spent um, you know, just um, writing more specifically about a time period and myself. Um, but that derived from my uh, invitation to come up to Hot 97 after you had came.
3: Wait, you guys so, have um, to tell us the story. Like, we all yeah. want to know what happened.
8: Well, uh,
4: so basically, what he's talking about, and I and I, I never knew this, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? So I'm honored to even be able to inspire something like that. Um, when I did my freestyle on Hot 97, I talked about a lot of the intric- intricates of the streets, mm-hmm. and um, are we talking
3: about the freestyle that I, everybody, the whole yeah. world was okay, a little bit. yeah, yeah a little bit.
4: and just broke down certain principles, you know, about snitching and certain people that were glorified in the culture, and um, Kev being from that era and that culture was one of the people that, that when I talked about certain situations that happened, Flex has said something about it, and then. Um, it, it, it went into, what well, we need to get Kevin Childs up here so he can have and listen to what he talks about. So Kevin's somebody that's been respected in the streets and just in the culture in general, you know, and um, we set up the interview to where he went up to Hot 97 and they asked him about principles in the streets and what makes this snitching and what are these certain rules and codes. And he just broke it down so eloquently, mm-hmm. you know, a way that even I couldn't do it because he just has a different understanding, The way that he... He just you just hear him speak mm-hmm. in a way he put like a street pharmacist. Most people don't say street pharmacist, mm-hmm. but this is just how Kev <laughs> you know he presents things. So he went up there, he broke it down, and um, I guess, like he said, just having that conversation and seeing how people were interested in just understanding right. how he thought and how he perceived things, then he just put it into a book. So that wow, that's amazing. I'm, I'm honored to, to have had anything to do with that, man. I appreciate that.
8: Well, I'm, I'm happy that it occurred that way, because I, I would have never did it. Like I said, we, we have been publishing this magazine for over 20 years, and, and we have been um, interviewing certain individuals that, you know, I felt that the community had found very interesting to help to deliver our message. And at no point in time did I ever put much of the emphasis on myself for the most part. So um, like I said, come, coming from that interview and seeing how well it was received and it going viral, I was encouraged. Thereafter, like with well, Kev you you probably need to do something like that and and I put pen to paper on that, and that's really how that came about.
4: Wow. Wow, that's dope, man.
3: Wow, that's very very in, encouraging to hear that story and how everything connected, yep. you know. And it's crazy that that your freestyle was in 2016. That's been it seems time's just flying by, but that's a whole different day, a whole different conversation about the universe. So, Royce, tell us about your book. I mean, I know a lot about about cardiac arrest and just so happy you took the time to sit down and really in your own way, write the letters to our sons. Right. So talk about your experience with writing the book.
7: Well, one of the things that uh, you guys mentioned earlier, my son, you was talking about, you know, being a hustler and being an entrepreneur, I think all those things are something that we have in common, but are also the cultural tie, right? You could be an entrepreneur, have no cultural tie. And although you might be financially successful, you really meaningless in your soul. So when I looked at cardiac arrest, I did look at one, the cultural tie between me and the community. And number two, you know, as a business person, what does my community need? Is the void right what do we need to learn right and so in doing that i'm saying but well, we're marching we're talking what is going to be the long lasting document or documents that folks can have over a period of time to read to to go to we had the green book we have the bible we have a bunch of uh books out there and guides out there to help us through life so looking at it from a cultural and an academic and in an awareness perspective, when you know you have laryngitis, Tamika has laryngitis, and you're not out there in the, in the forefront speaking. Well, where are we getting the information from? Mm. Right? When your time is divided and you're doing other things, where are we getting this information from? How can we make this information with us, take it, take it with us all day, every day? And that's how I came to cardiac arrest. I mean, you mentioned the title, the title is is really just an example of. Our life as people of brown and black color skin out here in America. When police stop you, whether you're driving or whether you're walking, you do have the same symptoms that you're having when you think you're having a heart attack. Mm. Your hands get sweaty, your blood, your, your, your blood pressure goes up, you know, you start thinking about, well, at least for me, what is what I did in the past, what my future is gonna look like, what's going on with the present. So it is, if not a death experience, it's definitely a near death experience, right? And your heart stopped. And so that's where I got cardiac from. The arrest came from because rarely is the situation resolved where you're not arrested. Mm -hmm. Something's gonna happen, the cuffs are coming somewhere. And we could define what arrest means, whether that means process down at the precinct, or whether that means standing in handcuffs in front of your car or in front of your loved ones or in the street or in the alley. It still is what it is so how do we perpetuate that you know and so i went and wrote the book based upon my experiences growing up in the bronx growing up in an area that is not serviced growing up in the, in the projects as they say and kind of extrapolate on that and my experiences being a civil rights attorney mm-hmm. we translated that book into spanish and now we have a workbook where brothers and sisters can sit down and they can look at questions Look at answers, multiple choice, A, B, and C. Pick an answer. We can have a discussion why that answer is right or wrong. Or are there two answers that are the same? You just happen to pick one, and I just happen to pick another. Mm. And then have a process where they can do critical thinking. They can write down their thoughts of what they see, how they vision their community. How can they become a leader? You know, using analytical skills, you know, understanding how the Constitution works with you actually being arrested. So, although we're having change for those here who may or may not know in New York City, from an educational standpoint, we see how far we will see how far change comes because this should be part of our educational system because it combines the reality of what's happening to most people that in that live in America, and it gives you an education of civics and critical thinking. So that's how I got to where I am. That's
4: dope. And When I'm listening to you. It, it, it correlates and connects to what Kev was saying, what he was doing with Don Diva, like giving knowledge about laws and things in the system that he didn't, he wasn't privy to until he actually went to prison. So he utilized the magazine to give information and entertain at the same time, and just you doing the same thing, utilizing this book to you know inform people about how the system works and certain things to do with the system. So I told you, y'all have so much connection and, and have so many similarities that's dope but um shaka and kev in, in the titles of y'all books there's the word redemption you know and i just want to know y'all expand what does redemption look like to you how do you feel like you redeemed you are redeemed or do you feel like it's going to take long you're never going to be redeemed and if it if you do feel like you're not redeemed but you can be redeemed what that, what will it look like what would you have to do to be redeemed
6: You want to start, Kev, or you want to go? Um, feel free. Yeah, you know, I, I think my redemption took place far before I ever got out of prison, uh, because it really had to come from within my community. And it had to come from my people. Uh, I never thought that the system itself would give me a second chance. And even at this point in my career, uh, there's tons of obstacles that stand in the way of just living a normal life, right? Um, and, and that's kind of par for the course when you think about being Black in America. But just for an example, you know, uh, people don't know that if you have a felony, it's hard to get life insurance. It's hard to get home insurance. Uh, and as a homeowner and as someone who wants to ensure that I protect uh, my, my son, uh, you know, in the event of my demise, those things are, are obstacles. They're, you know, things that we have to navigate. So I never have thought that the system itself would be uh, open to allowing us to, to you know, redeem ourselves. But for me, it was really about community. And a lot of my work started while I was in prison. You know, um, I had, you know, these older brothers who challenged me, you know, they challenged me to grow uh, when I was the hothead on the yard and eventually became like one of the main shot callers on the yard. And I was operating out of those broken <laughs> emotions of anger and violence and getting in more trouble is so why I ended up, you know, serving seven years of solitary confinement but those brothers always saw something redeemable in me. And they poured into me, and they fed me books and they challenged my ideas. You know, I tell people, I used to go to the, to the library, um, you know, every week and I would battle with these older brothers. You know, we would have these intense debates around books that they had selected and books that I had selected. And because I read relatively fast, they would often think that I didn't read the books. And so they would grill me like, yo, okay, what was Malcolm talking about on this page? What did Marcus Garvey mean about that? You know what I'm saying? And then they were swinging to philosophy. You know, what is Tao, you know, Zo talking about over here? And so that just sharpened me, but it also grew me. And even though I was rebellious, you know, I caught 36 misconducts when I was in prison. Um, When I needed that wisdom, when I was ready to transform my life, all of that they had poured into me came rushing back to me. And so that's where redemption started. I was an organizer in prison. I actually talk about it Uh, in my new book in one of the chapters about resistance. And I remember us organizing 300 men on the yard because we was tired of these two officers who was just running roughshod over people. And I was smart enough to know that if we just vitally attacked them, we definitely getting shot down. So what I did is I figured out a way to bend the rules and basically we organized in groups of six. And we all did exercise, but they were all different exercises but we all did one cadence and that wasn't technically illegal, but the voice of 300 men speaking in cadence at one time in a prison yard completely shook the prison up and they knew that they had to address that. So to me, redemption started well before I walked out of prison. Mm. You know, I started writing before I walked out of prison and then I came home as a servant to my community in which I still serve, I mentor all across the country. Um, You know, I've helped build organizations I'm a supporter and a resource for many organizations, and so to me, it's really just about what my people think. You know what I'm saying? Because uh, the system, you know, they don't really care. You know, to the degree in which you know we would identify as redemptive.
4: Mm. Well, that's that's deep, so Kev. So, what does redemption look like to you?
8: Um, for me, redemption is a is is a, is a personal perspective. For me, I, I don't ever think that um. I was a bad person. I, I, you know, I I feel as though I made certain choices that uh, egregiously affected people in my community. But for for me, I, I've always considered myself to be a decent person, and I think that had a lot to do with how my outcome. Because I've always treated people more than fair. You know, um, what when I started thinking about it, and, and the term more specific redemption, you know. It was a like I said, it was a personal, it was a personal endeavor for me and my family. You know, I I wanted my family to forgive me for not for 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 my absence in their lives, not being able to raise my kids for a certain amount of time. You know, I sat with that for a long time in prison because my intention was always to take care of my family. And then the exact opposite ended up ultimately happening when I wasn't there to protect them or to take care of them. You know, so I wanted first and foremost my family to forgive me, you know because my, my decisions and choice caused me not to be there, to be a father to my children and to raise them and to provide the things that I always wanted them to have. I always wanted them to have a better life than I had. I knew some of the choices that I made in life was just due to circumstances and my reality of what they was. And it was all with good intentions. you know. Um, so I, I was on a personal crusade to do that. So from the day that I walked out of prison, there's no way to make up for time, but I spent every moment trying to get my life back together and, 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 and provide the right example for my, my sons and of course my daughter. So I spent every moment just trying to do the right thing and, 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 you know, and, and actually beg them for forgiveness. Ultimately, because you know, uh, like we stated just presently, redemption has, has a different look for certain people. Like society may never, may never consider me redeemable. You know, um, I, I made a way when I came home. To, to move my family to an affluent neighborhood, to create uh, the opportunity for my kids to go to affluent schools, uh, to get a better education. You know, um, these opportunities wasn't provided to me for society, because I don't think society will ever forgive me or give me the opportunity that I feel I deserve. So I had to sort of take what I wanted. But more importantly, like I said, I think my crusade was to get my family to understand that the choices that I made wasn't because I didn't want to be absent in the household. And children, especially young, impressionable children, they don't sort of understand it. All they understand is that you you wasn't present, you wasn't there, you know? So I think I spent every waking moment trying to get, uh, to be forgiven by my immediate family, my children more specifically, you know? And ultimately, um, I, think, I think it's showing up that way, you know? So redemption, that's sort of like what it means to me, you know, primarily, more focused. It's
3: so interesting that in both um, stories, in both statements, you hold, both of you hold redemption so close to the heart. Because there are so many people who live every day for the world. They live for society. They live for what the people going to say, what they, the theys. And we talk all the time about who is they. Um, and to hear you... Make it really personal that redemption is about the people around you, your own community, you know, those folks who um, have poured so much into you and your development. And then for there to be something that happens that harms those individuals that you see redemption as working on that first. Um, And I think that's something that so many of our young men can learn from. And in fact, my son is 22 um, and I often have conversations with him. Look, and Royce is his lawyer, too. Let's we won't get into why Royce is his lawyer, but he is definitely <laughs> uh, also my son's you know, protector in terms of trying to keep his mind straight. Um, and there's been so many times that I have told him about carrying our last name as a family you know, that the way in which he operates in the world, that when he shows up, people need to know that uh, a Mallory child, although he he uh, shares his father's last name, which is Ryan's, but nonetheless, people know that he's my child, and he is the the grandson of Stanley and Von Sill, who are stellar leaders in the community, and that rather than trying to please the world, you have to first work on securing and, and helping to, um, you know, really put respect on the name that you Come from, so I think for us, um, that's a message that young black men have to hear constantly from us, so that they focus more on the inner rather than Instagram and what the world is telling them.
4: Yeah, true. It's definitely true, man. Um, just listening to all of you and the perspectives that you have is just enlightening. I just want to know, um, Shaka. You know, I know that you do a lot of work, and we do similar work with mentoring. How how do you approach? Because a lot of people approach mentoring different when you have conversations with young men that probably are in similar situations or similar mind states that you had when you were young and you see them going down this path like what's the mind state that you approach them how do you deal with that because we talk as we talking about Tamika's son like we need a little strategy to try to help <laughs> our son So just like what what is your strategy
6: yeah you know I, I think I approach everything from trauma-informed care you know I was an honor roll scholarship student with all the potential in the world. And a series of traumatic events happened in my life from being abused in the household uh, to being shot at a young age. And so when I'm working with young people, for one, I learned to listen more than I talk. Mm. Um, I think our instinct is to try to correct, to try to guide, and I've just learned to listen because typically when you listen, you can start to unravel uh, the mystery behind young people, right? Uh, And then it's also detached ego. I don't have my ego attached to any outcomes, because at the end of the day, I had to serve a sentence. And so I'm very clear that if a a young person is intent on making poor decisions, like you can't attach your ego to that, otherwise you'll drive yourself crazy. And so it's egoless mentoring. It's intentional listening, but it's really through the lens of trauma-informed care, really understanding what has happened to our children, what they've been exposed to, where their points of pain are at. Uh, you know, and especially with, with family, you know, I, I, I'm parenting, you know, my 10-year-old, um, his mom and I, we haven't been together for seven years. So understanding that that was a fracture early on that I had to be intentional about how do I co-parent in a way that's healing, healthy, and that's rooted in the love for him. Mm. And thinking about the young men that I mentor, the young women, I mentor a lot of young ladies as well, is understanding what is, what is that trauma story? What is that origin story? Uh, and what is their aspirational story. And so a lot of times just listening and really hearing where they're coming from, but also being willing to be vulnerable and be honest and to not glorify Mm -hmm. past decisions. Like, you know, I was convicted of second degree murder when I was 19 years old. And, you know, I I understand the culture, you know, the the, the whole, you know, how we celebrate the psychotic behaviors that exist in our community. You Mm. know what I'm saying? And how we elevate that, right? Uh, You know, I was put on a pedestal in the hood as a a shooter. Um, And so for me, really getting them to understand, there was the prison sentence, but then there's the reality of, you know, this is something I live with every day. You know what I'm saying? My brother was murdered last summer, and I couldn't properly grieve because I know I made a family feel the way that that, that our family was feeling. And so trying to unravel you know, that reality for them in a way that's honest, that's transparent. It's not about glorifying, you know, like, yes, I got shot. And the story we hear when somebody gets shot is like, oh, you know, I did this and I had to get back. What we don't hear is that when I was sitting in that hospital bed, that I was afraid because I was really a kid, Mm -hmm. you know, 17 years old, you're a kid. But when the stories are retold, oftentimes they're glorified as if we are void of emotions, as if we're void of fear. Or as if we don't experience sadness, and so that listening, you start to tune in, and then language is so important. Um, you know, when I talk to the young brothers, I intentionally call them brothers. Mm. I don't call them yo, what up, my little nigga, because that 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 word, as much as we use it in our culture, and, and it's not to be. You know, it is what it is, but it also creates a a a, a, a barrier between emotional honesty. And I think when, when, I, when I've talked to these young brothers, they can't wait to be hugged by a man, mm-hmm. like a man that stands in the authenticity of his manhood with love and, and emotional growth and maturity. Like these young brothers crave that mm-hmm. and they're afraid to seek it out. So we have to be seeking out how to give it to them, but we have to listen first.
3: L- let me ask you, uh, Royce, Um, Just thinking of, you know, me saying that you uh, have worked with Tariq and I have called you many times late night. Like, can you talk to him? You know, can you you help to translate things that I have not been able to articulate well? Um, And, you know, and also just to help him see what the end result of, you know, not not coming home on time. Nobody knows where you are. These types of things like what can happen. I'm assuming that you have so many clients that you are, you know, that you're defending and working with professionally that you take, you have to stop and take time to also mentor and try to work them through some of the the mental and emotional challenges that they're facing. So tell us what that looks like for you and your work and how exhausting is it as a black man? Do you feel like it's your responsibility to do that with the young, with, you know, people that you are working with, your clients?
7: Well, first of all, um, you do a great job with giving your son advice. It's just that where he's hearing it from, right? It's not the advice in and of itself that is not good advice. It's who I'm hearing it from and whether or not I wanna give credence to that because I'm a male and she's a female, despite what you do in the world, right? And then it takes a little bit of, yeah, I heard that before. I remember when my mom said that, you mean like this has been going on for generations? Yeah, this has been going on for generations and this is how you're gonna to have to deal with it. And I think once those who are younger see someone that is older saying, yeah, I had that experience and this is how I went through that experience then it shows a different light. But I can never be as eloquent uh, to reflect what Shaka just said in reference to how you go about being this mentor, because what you're speaking to is as an attorney, that's exactly what I am, because most of the people that I represent, young, old, in between people of color, I'm probably maybe the first or second time they've had an attorney that's African-American. They've had legal aid, they've had neighborhood defenders, they had the attorney that their family thought was going to do the right thing. And usually that's not a person of color. So then here I come walking through the door, right? Intentionally, unintentionally, referral, you name it. And now they're seeing, maybe for the first time, someone of color that is talking about the things that they did. Then you add on top of that, once I get to let them know me because that's what comes first right they're not going to you know tear down their guard that defense is there it's always been there it got to be there every day 24 hours seven days a week it's going to be there when i get finished talking to them they go upstairs it's there when they come down in the elevator to have their legal consultation it's going to be there so somebody has to tear down the wall and so as we have in the conversation then they realize oh you grew up in the bronx or they realize you were shot at oh you did go to prep school oh but you all sat together all of the five blacks that you had in your class out of 35 or 60 whites. you sat together, you're ate lunch together. It's a different type of incarceration. But all the attributes that look quite similar, the congregation, the isolation, the and at the age 14, when you don't really understand racism and you really understand classism and how that works together, and somebody comes up to you and say the wrong thing, and next thing you know, they're on the floor and they're almost dead because they hit their head on the marble table
9: Mm. because you
7: did something. And the isolation that comes after that, when you start to relay those stories and you start to talk about people that they may have heard of that you hung out with or that you were in, in the presence of, but just for whatever reason, you left a little bit earlier, right? You know, those things start to resonate. So what I do in my practice and what I do every day, whether it's mentoring or whether it's advising, is that we are gonna walk the walk together. Mm. That's just what we gotta do. We are gonna walk the walk together. And I'm gonna call you on things that are just flat out, what are you talking about? Like, what are you saying? Like, what, what, what are you really saying? Is this what you're saying? Because nah, that's not what's really, right? And then there's gonna be some things, and there's gonna be a lot of things that as we talk about trauma, like I never really saw it that way, because I don't see myself being traumatized, right? But I was, right, to a certain degree. And I don't blame anybody for it. You got seven people in a three-bedroom apartment, one bathroom. And where you can study is in the bathroom. Mm. You can't study anywhere else. TV's too loud. music too on. You can't study. You would confined in that bathroom that's probably five by five. And if someone goes to the bathroom and does something, you can't go back into the bathroom to study. You sitting on the edge of a tub reading on a hamper it sounds pretty isolation to me it sounds like you isolated to me Different, once again never the same but kind of the 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 no, it is, it, it,
3: but and then right? and then and then you're sitting inside of an apartment that is located inside of a housing project where everything is right. going on and there's right. trauma that exists just from right. being in proximity to our Come communities on. and, you know, what's had. No matter what you're doing. I was a kid who grew up in a household that was very different from my neighbors, right? We didn't have... Um it wasn't well you know and 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 that's relative. I was going to say we didn't have drug addicts like in in our home like my parents weren't drug addicts. But the truth is Uncle Jimmy who came every Sunday was a crack addict and right. he had AIDS. He had to sit in one space in the house where he was he had he was also homeless, he was bleeding. My mother, you know, but she was still going to let him in. So he was being taken care of. My brother was in and out of the system shot this one this happened that happened he's in jail back and forth and while they were my parent my father was a correction officer my mother was working for taxi and limousine commission they were good people we were the best of the best in the building but we still lived in manhattanville projects so the That's trauma right. is still there
9: yeah.
7: yeah yeah and then so so then when you leave that restroom that bathroom everybody is talking about how they want you to be a success but nobody is giving you the means to be successful. Mm. You're all in my way. Like, like what, are, so you translate that to people that you come across, at least in my practice, right? And we, you know, we kind of focus on the young folks, but really I'm talking mm-hmm. to men at 55, 56, 35, 34. And, and no matter what the decade is, they're like, yeah, that happened. and And you know, 65 and like, you still doing this at 65? And I'm amazed sometime at myself, and Shaka probably can speak this, and definitely Kevin can speak this, how I'm speaking to some people in some type of way that I know if they want to do something, in a minute, it, it could be over. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like if they really want to do something, they really want to, like, you know what, you're talking to me some type of way. I know where your office is. This can be a situation. The reason why you can do that is because your authenticity, mm-hmm. your sincerity, your culturalism, they, they, even though they don't know what to call it, they see it as a mentorship, you know. Even though they don't know what to say, it they see it as love. Even though they don't know what to say, you you their peoples, I understand. and you never have to worry about anybody filing any appeal. You ain't got to worry about nobody saying you sold me down a river. Is because of that relationship.
4: That's yeah. dope. You know, I was just sitting here just thinking about all the traumas that we deal with, right? And just listening to and knowing a little bit of everybody's story here, you know. Um, just thinking, I was thinking about. This is kind of a deep question, and I don't know if you ever thought about it, but Shaka, have you ever liked um, the family members of the person whose life you take? Have you ever had any conversation with them? Mm. Had some, like, expressed some level of sorry, or, or was that ever something that you wanted to do? Was it an opportunity? Did that ever happen?
3: Like a reconciliation? Yeah, some
4: type of reconciliation.
6: Yeah, that's that's a great question, my son. I think it's you know it, it really speaks to what I was talking about earlier, how you carry this for the rest of your life. Uh, so about five or six years into my prison sentence, I got this letter from a woman named Nancy. Mm-hmm. And initially, I mean, you know, it, for those of us who've been in prison, you know, our pen pals randomly write as you know your your mom's friend from the church or aunt's friend or a neighbor. So I didn't know who this woman was, and I remember opening the letter and I started to read it and what she said to me was i want to tell you a story about david the man whose life you're responsible for taking
9: Mm
6: -hmm. this is who he is as a father this is who he is as a son this is who he is as a friend and so she tells me this story she raised him as his godmother and i remember wanting to ball that letter up like i was so shaken like i didn't even know what to do at the time i was probably about 22 or 23. But I kept reading that letter. And in that letter, she said, you know, despite these things, I forgive you because that's what God would want me to do. And her and I started corresponding. And I remember she would ask me, like, what happened that night? And I would give her the very just practical things, you know, but she was like, what happened to you? Mm. Like, what happened to you at 19 years old that made you take a man's life? I could tell from your letters that you're very intelligent, very insightful. And so we went on this journey where I was avoiding for a long time, even telling her all the elements of what happened. It was a drug transaction that went wrong that he shouldn't have been part of, somebody else brought him, so I avoided all that for, for a while. And eventually we got to that truth. Fast forward, I get out of prison. I self—I originally self-published, but a lot of people don't know, I originally self-published writing my wrongs. I hustled that book out of the trunk, 2013. That book that I hustled out of the trunk eventually reached Oprah. Once it reached Oprah, I was able to, you know, parlay that into a mainstream deal, right? When I went mainstream, I go on a local news station, just to, you know, pub in the book, all the stuff we do. I get an email from the, you know, the journalist and she says, David's wife reached out to you. Mm. She wants to connect. And so she sent her email and said, if he's serious about his redemption, he will call me. I was, I was in the middle of a, a, a program, the rapper Big Sean, he's from Detroit, and he does this mentoring program I was a speaker, I had to stop, step out, call David's wife, call her. And we get on this call and she was like, I'm so proud of the man you've evolved into. And you know, I've really been wanting to speak with you for a while. Now, what a lot of people don't understand is when you're incarcerated for an assault of crime, you can't reach out to the family. Mm-hmm. You can't reach out to anybody that you victimize unless they reach out to you first. Mm-hmm. And so I have been wanting to have that conversation with, you know, specifically his wife. And so we ended up having this conversation and we talked and, you know, we exchanged some texts. Um, and then sadly and unfortunately, they decided to sue me once they saw all the Oprah thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And now and I'll, and I'll tell you this, you know, at the, at the most human level, I understood their anger. Mm-hmm. And I understood their frustration. But I also understood that they were wrong and their efforts to extract money for me sharing my life story. Mm. Um, but because of the empathy and the understanding I had for their family, I didn't show up with any anger. You know what I'm saying? I, show up, I showed up with empathy and compassion, and all the exchanges between our lawyers were compassionate and you know, empathetic. And so what I realized in that moment is that they were in the midst of a deep deep hurt and deep sorrow um as many families are who has lost a loved one and that pain manifested with outsiders telling them this is how they should get justice Mm. even though i had already served my time and did all the things that i needed to do to 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 deal with the, the legal part and so what i what i would say my son is that you know these things that we find these moments that we find ourselves in you know that was a 30 second decision that ended a life and it completely changed my life for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, my young son has had to deal with the fallout from, you know, my experience, Mm -hmm. you know, going to school and, you know, a kid can say, hey, your dad's a murderer. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, there's business, there's people I've dealt with, there were job opportunities. And so everything that I've been able to do, I had to kind of create it very grassroots, very, you know, guerrilla style, you know what I'm saying? Hustle, hustle until you break through and once you break through there's no going back but it endures you know and so for me i think it's important uh for us to atone when we can and where we can it may not always be directly to the people that you've harmed but there's other people in proximity like i've worked with mothers of murdered children uh back when i was in detroit and i was able to sit as a proxy for you know, the men who had killed these mothers' kids. And I was able to sit and allow these sisters to say, I don't like you. I hate you. I'm hurt by you. I'm devastated by you. And I was also able to apologize on behalf of those men and facilitate healing. And, like, that's the work that is a lot of that's behind the scenes. But restorative practices are popping up all over. And I think it's one of the linchpins to actually heal in our community because, as we know, violence is cyclical. Mm. You kill my brother, I kill your brother, you know? And I just, you know, spared a whole family when my brother was murdered. I went home, you know, I'm, I'm in a D, I'm official in the street, the brothers, they love me. My brother got killed, the whole block was there. And they like, we know where his mom at, we know where his brother's at right now, we about to go around, and I was like, no, we not, that's not what's happening here. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Because sometimes, some of us, sometimes we have to step up and say, you know what, it got to end here, you know. My family is hurting. You know, this was our baby brother. He wasn't in the streets. He wasn't doing anything wrong. And all of us, most of my brothers, were all from the streets, so it's easy to justify that kind of reaction. But the responsible and healing thing to do is to disrupt that. Uh, and so we were. I was fortunate that you know I'm 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 the OG. I'm OG enough for them to actually listen. Wow. Um, but that's all. That's part of the restorative practices. What's um, your brother's name? Uh, Sherrod. His name Sherrod Red. And I was fortunate before the book came, the new book came out, to be able to you know dedicate this book to him and other young mm-hmm. brothers and sisters and families who have lost a loved one. And you know it's uh it's hard though you know because it's like it ain't even been a full year you know.
9: Yeah. But
6: um you know it, it's it's the nature of our community that we got to talk more about. That's you know, this is reckless gun violence and, you know, his circumstances was different. Like I was in the streets, street stuff. You know, there there's, you know, understanding in that world of these are the potential outcomes. Um So when it happens differently, it hurts differently. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I just look at these moments, man, as opportunities to further heal our community and, and really advise, um, you know, young people like how to think about these things differently.
4: That's right, man. And so we got we got to wrap this up, but I, I really want to ask Kev a question, just based on just what you said, right? Mm-hmm. And knowing some of Kev's story, Kev, you know, I I read, or I, I think I seen an interview where you were talking about how your mother was killed, and um, okay. and I just just was listening to it and just just trying to process it, and I, and and I believe it was just based off someone trying to get do something to you or trying to extort you or something or some get back, did you, when when that happened, did you blame yourself? Do you still blame yourself for the situation? How did you come to terms with that whole situation?
8: Well, for clarity, it it actually didn't have anything to do with me.
4: Okay, I'm Uh, sorry.
8: It was actually brought to my doorstep, a, a very good friend of mine at the time, his girlfriend who at the time was maybe 18 years old and she had got kidnapped. And it just so happens that the kidnapping happened in the Bronx, uh, probably minutes from where my mother lives. You know, my mother lived in the, uh, the uh, Fordham Hill section, uh, University, you know, in that vicinity. And this happened like in a section like in like Fordham Hill section of the Bronx, which this young lady was visiting a, um, a girlfriend of hers. And then when she left the apartment, they abducted her. And um, they had asked her for money, and me and her, me and her boyfriend, you know, we were like uh, intertwined in in, in, the, in, in, in our illegal dealings. So um, I guess when they had when they had her, they had asked her to to, to take them to my house to get some money or, or some kind of way. My my name came up in a conversation. In any event, she brought them to my mother's house, and um, they manipulated themselves to get into the apartment, maybe saying something that happened with me. My mother knew who this young lady was, but she wasn't, she wasn't you know, directly associated with her, but she happened to know who this young lady was. So some kind of way they gained access to the apartment in search of money and, and drugs and those kind of things, which none of that was, was there. Um, but to answer your question, indirectly or directly, it, it still was because of the life choices that I had made, of course. You know, had I not chose that as, a, as, as an occupation, then it would have never ended up at my mother's doorstep. So to answer your question, frankly, you know, it's not a day that's went by, and that's been over 30 years that 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 I've been able to forgive myself. And that's one of the reasons why I go so hard for my family, you know, to 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 to, to make it make sense. Because, you know, especially around holidays and and, and certain things, even with the, with the birth of my grandkids, because I'm a grandfather now, to know that she wasn't here to see that, you know what I mean? And I did all of these things for that reason. I mean, I actually got into the, the drug game because of the poverty that we was in and I was trying to pick up some of the slack around the household, you know, to make to take the burden off of her and make the load a lot lighter. You know, so the, ironically that been the in results like felt like my efforts was in vain because that was really what motivated me in the first place. So, um, I feel 100% responsible for it, you know what I'm saying? And that's not something you wake up and you can ever shake, you know, you can you can never you can never rid yourself of that guilt. And I walk around with it all the time, you know what I'm saying? But again, I'm, I have to do so much to the right to offset what went to the left. Mm. You know, in every waking moment, trying to um, just, you know, make it all make sense when it's said and done, you know what I'm saying? So, mm. But yeah, I, I feel directly responsible for it. And, and it's not nothing I've ever been able to like uh, sidestep.
3: What's the therapeutic process? First of all, thank, th- thank you to the three of you for being so vulnerable. And transparent, um, yep. This is probably one of, the most moving shows that we've done. Uh, The first one um, for me was watching the experience between my son and Hill Harper, where they both became teary-eyed on a show talking about some of the same issues, the trauma that black men specifically face. Um, And that show, for me, was probably the the first, you know, the the one that moved me the most. But this would certainly be the second. Just listening to you all talk about your lives and talk about your story. Uh, My son's father was murdered. Um, Now it's been 20 years, 20 years ago. He was shot twice and left in a ditch for two weeks before his body was discovered. Completely Mm. decomposed, obviously, by the time he was found. Um, And, you know, we were never able to give him a proper burial. And I have for a long time believed that just because my son had me, you know, my mom, my dad, my sister and so many people around that he didn't have all of this trauma when he you know, I would think I was always thinking, well, you've been well taken care of. You didn't want for anything. But it took my son and other men around me to say that that experience, even though he was only two. He's still dealing with the trauma of his father being murdered and the way that he was murdered. And, um, you know, I, I realized that black men have a real story. And so, again, thank you so much for for telling it. And then and the last thing I think as we close out is what is the therapeutic process? Because, Kevin, I'm not sure whether you're in therapy, but I know that what you just said requires it. Right. Um, Shaka I think I'm pretty sure you have had some therapeutic experience and even Royce while you know while yes you are helping other people but there's definitely a need to work through what you see black men who look like you going through every day because sometimes I think there can be a little bit of survivor's remorse for those of us who have made it so to speak Um, so are you all as anybody you know here Receiving therapy, or is it something you're looking to do? Can we, you know, whoever wants to take that question can just jump in.
7: Well, I want to answer that. I'll answer that first. um I love therapy. I mean, like, I can't even imagine life without it. And for a couple of reasons that you mentioned, one, I know I'm jaded. Like, like I, I know I'm jaded. I was, I was fortunate enough to go to a prep school where. You know, I'm less than one percent. percent. Didn't even, I knew why I was there. I was there to play basketball. Didn't understand racism. Didn't I, I understood classism because I was still on food stamps and stuff of that nature. Family was able to work through it, struggling with, well, you want me to be a success, but it sure don't seem like it. You know what I mean? And going to school and being stressed out with, like, don't worry about tuition. Don't worry about this. Just study. So and, and I love my family for that. I mean, like that mm. was nothing wrong with that. That was a situation we were in. But who does that make you, mm. right? Who does that make you when you look in the mirror and you're like, yo, look, I can't count on nobody but me. Mm. And mm. people are reaching out, but you're like, nah, I ain't gonna take that because I know it's gonna be disappointment at it. You don't know it's gonna be, you don't see it as disappointment, but you're like, you know what, I'm gonna do my own thing. I got it. It's something not right about that mm. when your only cheerleader is you. Mm. And you can't let anybody be a cheerleader for you. You know what I mean? You can't let any or your whole life you're looking for a partner to be a cheerleader for you. Or because people will, you know, people may not see what you see. And so, yeah, I got to get on that phone, call Dr. Gray up, let's have this conversation. It goes professional, it goes personal, it goes perspective. Right? How much success is success? Can you like bow down now? You know, is it the right thing to try to become a judge? How limited is that? There's a lot of things that go on with carrying a torch
5: mm.
7: of trying to make sure that culturally and legally we are all right. Mm. Because it's not once again, it's not a lot of us doing it.
9: Mm.
7: You know, New York City is a big place, but you could probably 10, 10 lawyers you could probably think of that practice in this area, whether it's civil rights or criminal defense that's of color
8: that
3: give a damn. Mm. Wow, um,
8: anyone um, else? Yeah, um, I, I can 100% identify with everything that Royce just said. Uh, and I'm very thankful for you being an attorney. My attorney who actually saved my life is a black attorney as well. His name is Mr. Anthony Rico. And, oh yes,
7: love him, love
8: him. He, he wasn't just an attorney. I learned a lot of life lessons with him. you know. And I had a lot of Italian high profile li- lawyers, Jewish lawyers that came to me that um, I thought aesthetically probably fit the bill better than he did, but it was something that he said when we spoke that it, I knew he it was it was relatable and I identified with him, you know. So um, and I chose him for a lawyer, and um, my life has ever been different because he shared some life lessons with me that to this day I live by. So I, I identify and relate to everything that you're saying, and like you said, it's just not enough of you guys in this field because it would change the lives of a lot of us. Mm. But to get back to the point of um, uh, therapy and, 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 um, and that um, my whole family looks toward me to make the right choices and decisions you know and to propel uh, my family from poverty and, and to the middle class and, and, to, and, to, and to ultimately um, generational wealth like you know and like I said I've been on a mission since I came home and I've single handedly have moved them and put them in a position that you know I know that if I wasn't um, doing what I was doing, I don't know what that would look like. Um, So with my accomplishments and my successes, is, is I think, what soothes my soul and and, and keeps me a little little bit at peace. But I'm sure that I could probably sit, you know, and um, unpack some of this trauma that that I've dealt with my whole life, because I know I'm very desensitized to a lot of things that I've just made common, like, you know, it's a commonality. I've just I've normalized it, you know, to get by. You know because even when I wrote the book it was very therapeutic you know it was a lot of things that I reflected on and I was like I don't even really believe that I endured that I went through that or I even was a part of that because it was such a heinous vicious time you know so to even be present today I consider it a blessing you know um, seeing being a grandfather was nothing I ever envisioned you know um, coming back uh, putting my daughter through college and seeing her graduate and then not having a child you know I, I didn't even think I would ever be even a part of their lives i didn't think i was gonna live long enough to to see this day wow. but the fact that i have done is a testimony to to uh to me just enduring and getting by and then like i said i, I live in the memory of my mother so everything i do is is i'm doing you know um for her more specifically and I, and I and i honestly think that she would be proud of me but the man that i turned into present day and all the things that i've done so um, it, do I think I, I could use therapy? I think all black men could use some therapy. Yeah, I think we absolutely. could, coming from urban environments. That's a fact. But I still feel blessed to be here today. And like I said, I'm honored to have been a part of this panel today. It's very insightful for me. You know, I'm glad that I was a Thank part you. of it. Thank, Thank you for having
6: here, me. Pal. Yeah. And I, I'll just add, I know we're wrapping up. Uh, I, Shaka, I'm before
3: a- you answer the question, I, and I know they're gonna kill me, the whole production team is looking at me like I'm crazy. But the, 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 we talked about this earlier in the show. Um, My brother told me uh, this this past weekend that he did 60 months in solitary confinement. I don't know why I didn't. I mean, I was I thought I did his bid with him, but clearly maybe because I became a teenager, I missed some time. I had no idea that he sat in solitary confinement for five years, but he told me he grew up in solitary. And I'm just trying to I just want to know, like we talk about therapy, like. What has it been like for you to deal with, you know, returning to life after having sat in solitary? What would you say for seven years? Because my son always tells me after how many days something. I think
4: after ninety to sixty days it, it changes you. It, uh, yeah. it does something mentally to you. Yeah. You know. Yeah. More time than that.
6: Yeah. No. It, it, it's 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 one of the most horrendous things that we can do to another human being, and I think a lot of people experience. Just a, a, a minor glimpse of what that's like with the pandemic, um, you know, that feeling of being alone, that feeling of not knowing when things are going to change. Uh, the hardest thing for me about being a solitary is my sentence was indefinite, which means it's not like, hey, you're going to be there for 30 days or 60 days or 90 days or a year. You're just going to be there until they decide to let you out. And so you can never really put your feet on solid ground and it's the it's the most barbaric stripping of a human being uh people often ask why do i write from such a space of vulnerability it's because i've already been stripped of everything Mm -hmm. um and so for me regaining ownership over my life you know requires me to confront the things that have made me uncomfortable in life Mm -hmm. and you know when i think about my therapeutic processes since i've been out uh, and i promise i can't wait for y'all to read this book and it's not even just on a sales pitch but I get into like the molecular level of what it was like coming out because those that know me, you know, the public, the public facing side, right? The accomplishments, the accolades, but I talk about in a new book, the dark side of
9: it, mm.
6: uh, what happens when the lights go off, you know, when the cameras are not there, when I'm alone in a hotel room, uh, processing all the trauma that I've just vomited up. And, you know, so I started seeking out counseling I started seeking out therapy and sadly, Um, it is really hard to find a black therapist.
3: Yeah.
6: Um, it's hard to find a black male therapist that doesn't have a back caseload of people that can't afford to give you the attention. And the last therapist I have, cool dude, but the same thing continues to happen over. They get so enraptured in the reality that I survived what I survived that I almost become their therapist Mm. Uh, because they can't even believe that I thrive at this level. And that I've been able to do the things that I do and still show up as a full human being where they're like, damn, well, what do I need to do? You know (laughs) what I'm saying? Um, And so it's made it very difficult, you know, but I'm really I can tell you I'm really fortunate. I read a lot of books. uh, I write, you know, writing is my therapy, you know, and I just have incredibly beautiful people in my life, Uh, people who I can talk to about all the things, you know, and and. You know, having having a, you know, being a dad where a lot of my fatherhood has been as a single dad, you know, is really watching my son's processes, watching who he is and how he's become without all the trauma has helped me even understand the depths of the trauma. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because a lot of the trauma we talk about right now is like prison and and, uh, gun violence, but it's deep, it goes back to our childhood. You know, it goes back to what happens in our household and whether it's out of survival whether it's out of a repeated cycle, a lot of that trauma that comes from there bleeds over into how we show up in the rest of the world. Uh, so I'm just a big advocate of, of people really uh, taking care of their mental health, their emotional health, cutting out the things and the people that don't serve where you're trying to get in life. Um, I don't have no problem shutting down shop at this point. You know, I've matured and grown to a space of really understanding that we as Black men specifically, we deserve joy. You know we deserve to be able to receive love not just show love uh we deserve to be a provided for and not just be providers and that is holistic living and experience that we've been robbed of and deprived of and oftentimes we've deprived ourselves of it and so you know for me therapy is that as you know is really important and and lastly i'll say this i ran into iyanla bazant who i did this minor work with before and we were we were we were just talking briefly i mean like a five minute talk and what she said to me has left an imprint on me that i know what i need to do is she said, chakra no matter how you show up in the world no matter how brilliant how talented how successful you are what happens to you is embedded in you physically mm-hmm. and you have to move that energy out of your body and i was like damn she was like as a human being you cannot be confined to solitary for seven years without that impacting your cells, like the cellular nature of your being, mm. you know? And so it was just like it started showing me like all these little things, these nuanced things, you know, the emotional disconnect that comes so easily, uh, you know, emotional distance from anything that's inconvenient, not even just hard, that's inconvenient. I don't have time for that. You know what I'm saying? Who got time for those feelings, right? Not, not even liking being touched. Like it took years for me to be comfortable with like, just a hug Mm -hmm. you know uh how i have conversations to be able to enjoy and express myself without skepticism you know and so you know there's long-term implications of incarceration and and it doesn't matter the length of time i promise you um you know and and this is something that i think we can all appreciate i'm a big fan of hip-hop you know i'm I'm, i think i'm one of the biggest fans of hip-hop pay attention to every artist who has ever been arrested For any amount of time. The indignity of being stripped, searched, uh, the indignity of being, you know, having officers look in your most intimate of spaces, the indignity of being shorn of all agency over anything that you would normally do as an adult, like that psychologically damaged you. And none of them have ever been the same after that. You see a heightened aggressiveness, you see a heightened defensiveness, because these are real consequences of what prison does far beyond, you know, so-called protecting the community. So a big advocate for mental health, happy y'all are talking about it. And, you know, such a pleasure to meet you brothers. Uh, Kevin, you know, Don Diva saved my life many times in Mm -hmm. prison, you know, reading those articles and just keeping us connected to what was going on in the community. Um, And it's so dope to just see, you know, a brother who was actually not just a legal uh, counsel, but also blessing us with the jewels so that, you know, in the event we need to understand um, what's happening legally, we had it at our disposal. So, salute Appreciate y'all! Can't, can't wait to grab y'all brothers' books. Yeah. There's definitely,
4: I make sure make sure that y'all connect and y'all change exchange information and y'all stay connected because these are the type of brothers that y'all need to reenroll. I can just see y'all creating and building together something that'll be, you know, phenomenal. So that's that was my process when I put this whole thing together. Mm. So we gotta good go. Good job, you did you a know, good job. Did you did right. something today. Good. I did, I did right? You
3: know, <laughs> I have to give you a little yeah, bit of props. Little, you know I usually beat you up, yeah, but you, you know, I did a little you, something. Man. You a little Y'all something, made me look good. I appreciate it.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so listen, so man, we got to go for you. Twenty yeah, two. Okay. You know yeah. What yeah.
3: What yeah. So
4: listen, man, we gotta go because we can just have this whole conversation. We probably could do this for four or five hours. You know, I'm just I'm in awe of all of you guys, man. So make sure you get your book, Royce. What's the
7: name of your book? Cardiac Arrest, A Tactical Guide on How to Handle Unlawful Police Stops. You also have it in workbook form. And I'm going to do like Shaka do. I'll show you the workbook, yeah. so there you That's
4: go.
6: That's right. Uh, all right. Shaka, what's the name of your book? Say it one more time. New one. The new book is Letter to the Sons of Society, A Father's Invitation to Love, Honesty, and Freedom.
4: Honesty and Freedom. Make sure you go get that book. And Kev, let them know the name of your book.
8: Crack, Ever the Rise, Fall, and the Redemption of Kevin Childs.
4: Yes, sir, man. And I
3: have a book. <laughs> and it is called State of Emergency. State of emergency. Okay, right. how That's we win not. in the country we built.
4: That's right. Yeah, Listen, not. all this black excellence in these black books, man, make sure you go out and get everybody. And your book. book. And my book is I Know My Rights. It's the first 10 amendments of the Constitution just broken down for our youth to understand their rights when they're actually engaged by law enforcement and have to deal with the law in any, you know, um capacity Capacity. so thank you guys i appreciate you man i look forward to continue to build with you brothers i'm glad that i got all y'all on speed dial man so i appreciate (laughs) y'all nothing but love man continue to be great make sure you go get all of these books these books are things that are going to elevate you and give you understanding of what we go through in this culture and how us as black men have to adapt and continue to evolve and go through so many things but still we rise man i appreciate y'all Right. Thank you. Thank Much you for love, having. brothers. I love yeah. you
3: all.
6: Love.
1: Thank you. Yeah. AT and connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive to work. In traffic, so slow connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of Spoken Audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T.
5: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of may have a lower response to the vaccine side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site fatigue headache muscle and joint pain for full prescribing information please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit prevnar20.com ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with prevnar20 even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine That's how we
4: own it. Go.
3: you did good because that yo. was that was excellent
4: powerful chill man shout out to those brothers royce russell Shaka Singhore and Kevin Childs, three people that I respect. You know, I call them for different jewels, and um, they they
3: delivered to pow- them. They, they are, they I mean, it was powerful. There was so much, you know, also being around you and Oh, and Angela- let me
4: just give a, a shout-out to my brother, Del Son, oh, who yes. is the person that Del actually Song. connected me with Kevin Childs. I man. need to go and he's to another the- dude that is... Another real um, insightful brother that I talked to give me a lot of insight and Jews. So shout out to him. I got to well. get
3: in my DMs and debate with Del because he loves to debate oh, me yeah. on, on things or give me a little bit of information about stuff I may not be paying attention to. But I'm going to tell you, when I listen to them and what they were saying, I think about just over time and specifically since I'm with you and Angelo, uh, attorney Angelo Pinto, our attorney. other uh, co-founder at Until Freedom. And since I'm with y'all so much, and I, I listen to the things y'all say, you may not think so, because Linda and I argue back and forth oh, okay. with y'all all the time. But I do listen. And even in the in my book where you wrote um, your part, your, your piece where you talk about your experience, you say, starting out, that you have always felt like there was no one that you could depend on. And then hearing Royce Also say that, like, you know, he had to be his own cheerleader. It's just it resonates so much, the stories that no matter what the background may be or where you all have come, gone and how you've evolved, there are still these fundamental challenges about black men not feeling supported, loved, respected. Um, and and that's painful to hear, especially being the mother of a black son, because I don't want him to feel that way. But there is something about society that just does that to our men.
4: It is, man. It's a common thread when you listen to Roy say that. I I I was I shook my head like wow, you feel like you're your own cheerleader you don't want to be disappointed so you just figure it out. Kev was talking about how he just became he normalized, like I say a lot of times we've normalized abnormality. He normalized disappointment. He's and mostly detached when you listen to shaka he could just walk away he don't even want to deal with anything that inconveniences him right mm. when you when you go through so many things in life and you deal with certain levels of trauma imprisonment you know violence and all those things you become numb to certain things you become so detached like i feel like i need levels of seclusion in my life i just need to be by myself i don't You know, I can't share space. There's so many different things that we deal with as black men going through what we've been through, man, and just hearing them just say it, right? And, and, And just being able to say words. You know, I know what that is, man. So it's therapeutic just listening to other people who have shared experiences, who have shared emotions yeah. and things that you dealt with that you never even been able to express or tell to anybody else. And it's to hear them freely, like you said, be transparent and vulnerable on this space was just something that was very enlightening.
3: It is, Isn't it crazy? Maybe, maybe this is the wrong perspective, but how the things that cause us trauma also can teach us such powerful lessons. Like the things that we see that might not be good for us on one hand actually teach us humility and other things. So I talked about my uh, my cousin, Jimmy. You know, we call all the older people uncle. So he's Uncle Jimmy to me, but he was actually my cousin. And he used to come to our house every Sunday. When we lived in the projects. He was on drugs, homeless, and he had AIDS He was bleeding at times. He had all kinds of issues. I probably as a young kid shouldn't have been seeing that, right? At the dinner table in our house, they cleaned the area, but they fed him. That trauma also taught me humility. It was important for me to see my family not think that they were so uppity that they would not still take care of and love up on a family member who was, you know, going through, he was at the end of his life. And it's like we, black folks just have to, we always have to juggle with so many different realities Mm -hmm. and then be able to get the best from the worst. So watching him in his situation wasn't, because I I remember it and it traumatizes me at times, his smell, his all of these things that he was going through, but he also was so, he loved us so much and he was able to come back to a home, despite whatever his situation is. I, I know that did something good for me, even though the images are, are are things I'll never get out of my mind.
4: That's real. when You know, we, we learn, so like you said, we learn from our trauma, and it teaches us certain things, man. So, dope episode. Dope episode. You know, shout out to those brothers. And that brings me to my, I don't get it.
3: What like, don't you get this week? So we talking
4: about all of these real things, like we. This is a real, real deep episode, and um, reality. You know, this <laughs> is like real realities—the things, tangible things you see, you touch, you smell, you actually engage in. And as we move towards, <laughs> you know, the future, the
9: future, the future,
4: and we talk about NFTs and crypto, right? And, and those being the bit next biggest things. And I get why you know i get what's going on because you know i got kids that play ps4 and all these things
3: ps5 now. ps5
4: and ps4 they really you'll know, listen to me they play ps5 but these kids love their ps4 they don't even my kids still ain't even open. i bought a ps5 for them last christmas that they ain't open mm-hmm. and they playing still playing the ps4 i don't know what it is but that's just a thing but when you look and see how day on this game and every day Keston my youngest son comes to me and like dad I need $20 I said for what? For V-Bucks <laughs> I'm like what is V-Bucks? I want to buy the new skin I want to buy this and he's paying for virtual outfits mm-hmm. literally paying for clothes that it's he the puts. metaverse the, 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 he's paying for clothes so I realized that this is the future because all the kids are doing it they want V-Bucks they want V-Bucks so NFTs actually make sense in that regard but the reality is people are going to be investing in owning virtual stuff like it's a real life. Like people are going to be buying things on the Internet like it's a real place that they're <laughs> actually visiting, like clothing and shoes and shopping for food. Like they had a whole program where you go in Walmart and you're shopping like you re- and, they, and you're spending real money. Like you're but spinning. But you gotta real- have
3: some kind of tangible something from that. It,
4: but in their mind it is, because they've created a whole universe. That you live inside this universe and you you tune in and it's like a real life. And that's what the future is going to look like. And I just don't get how we've normalized some some shit like that like how have we, we normalized we always
3: had that though Mike. it just has nah, progressed
4: it's, a, it's not prog- it's i don't think that's progression no
3: for it, me. no i'm no i'm saying well progress i don't mean progress in a positive or a negative i'm just saying it's um it's developed into a more expensive more whatever right i, I don't even know the proper words i'm looking for but when i'm because i bought stuff too I want. w first of all, if you think about a doll baby, we had to buy all the extra little clothes, the top, the but shirt. But you own
4: the doll baby. I know,
3: but this is not the baby. It was the your doll, doll baby, baby. baby that you touched. Yeah, but you it's hold, not the own you, the, you doll the, exactly. the doll baby world. So the doll baby on the computer.
4: So somebody has so listen to me. They're gonna have Louis Vuitton stores, they're gonna have all of this in the metaverse where you actually spend money for those clothes with at pretty much the same prices. That you spin out here and you are gonna own them inside the metaverse.
3: It's it, it's go, it's with it's what's happening. That's why your make, cell phone is I now get it, a, almost two thousand dollars. You know the cell phone is almost two thousand dollars. I
4: get it, but I own my phone though. See, I can touch this. It, it I stores guess I my hear things. What you're yeah, like a metaverse. But, it's not but, even. It's virtual reality. Like we're really gonna be paying to own things in virtual reality with a lot of real money. And people invest, and that's what the future and is going to go look to a
3: party like. So what it's going to a party do? With your friends, your friends be in Inside the party world. and they're
4: in the virtual world. And the thing, is, what that's going to do is just eliminate people from real. This is what the yeah. whole pandemic that's thing is. That's a problem. Is. This is a problem. Like, people are going to live so much in virtual reality that they're not even going to be living in real reality.
3: That's gonna be their real reality. That's crazy. Because let me you know, tell you, right now, right now, people think Instagram and whatever else these different online things. That's their reality. That's where they but live. But at least
4: Instagram is pictures of your real life, right? You But outside, that's how it's gonna be. You living in your no. no but your that's not in the metaverse. No, it's not yes, your it real is. life.
3: No, it is because Yo, it's, it's a, gonna be your picture, right? No, it's
4: gonna be you. Yeah. Like I you, like you exactly. inside there, you moving around. Exactly. Inside and this place that really don't be exist. There, and and y'all your be friends there will be talking to you character. on the,
3: the thing. Your friends will be on the like headphones and you'll see nah. and hear them speaking to you and y'all will be yeah. together. I'm not. So instead of writing on Instagram a message back and forth, you will be acting out whatever it is that you're saying to your friend or having the conversation with them in person. Anyway. Yeah. No way. Our show has been long today. Long show. A good show. But bro. it was a dope show. Yeah.
4: Shout out to the brothers who came up here. Make sure you get all of their books Cardiac Arrest, uh, The Crack Era by Kevin Childs, Cardiac Arrest by Royce Russell, and uh, Letters letter to, to My, my sons, sons of Society, son of society yeah. by Shakus and Gore. Go out and get those books. And Tamika, stay <laughs> in It's still one of the best sellers out here. Make sure you go get that. Hello. And with that said, Into the show. We appreciate you. Make sure that you continue to make us number one. (laughs) Street Politicians, number one podcast in the world. I'm not going to always be number
3: one in our heart. But we one. need the people to take on, it to number one look, you on got to speak chart. it to existence, man. I'm not saying that, that we don't, one. but if the thing is, if people believe that it's already there, but it's they already may there. not push
4: it. I'm telling you it's there. No, no, is no. It's there in your heart. Listen, people want to watch what's the best. we the best. Number one We <laughs> appreciate y'all. I'm not going to always be right. Tamika's not going to always be wrong, but we will both always, and I mean always always, always, always be authentic.
9: Peace. That's how we own it.